0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Conversational. My name is Julie Rame, and today I have a very special guest, Mr. Shelley Palmer. Shelley and I go back, we were just saying a lifetime, it's just suddenly the fingers and toes run out, so I I, I don't know anymore how many how many years, but he has been an uh, influence in my life um, professionally and personally, actually. I've got a personal story as well. Um, a wonderful guy, but in even more impressive background. And I, his, his story is, is crazy good. So I'm excited to, to dive into it. But let me tell you a little bit about Shelly before I bring him in. So he is LinkedIn's top voice in technology. He is the CEO of the Palmer Group, which is a strategic advisory technology solutions and business development practice. He's got several different areas that he's prominent in. So one is on air. So he covers the tech and business for Fox Five New York, and he's also well known for his work on the Emmy-nominated television show Shelley Palmer D- Digital Living, and he's also regular technology commentator for CNN, CNBC. So pretty much he's an authority. Um, you don't need me to say that. I think that says it all. Um, he's a technologist and an inventor. So he is the patented inventor of the underlying technology for enhanced television which is used by programs such as ABC's Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, ESPN Monday Night Football, and response-based advertising systems. Super cool. On the creative end, he's an award-winning composer, producer, writer, and director. He's worked with hundreds of brands, agencies, broadcasters, publishers, tech platforms, on advertising marketing campaigns such as Meow Mix, Burger King, and the city of Las Vegas. And then more recently, really, which is what he's become, I think, more known for is he's a subject, subject matter expert. So um, you can't see him because this is podcast, not video, but he ha- is a, wearing a, a shirt that says hashtag uh, strategy hacker. And he'll correct me if I've got that slightly wrong, but it's that is so him. So he's a popular speaker, moderator at technology and media conferences hosted by industry organizations like CES the National Association's Broad, Association of Broadcasters Convention, Promax BDA, Association of Television Program Execs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I could go on. He's He does stuff with Stern Grad Business School, Columbia. I mean, literally it's like the who's who. He's also won Emmy Awards. He's got, Palmer is a past president of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences the organization that bestows the coveted Emmy award and the creator of the advanced media Emmy awards help annually at international CES. Super cool. And if that's not enough, he's an author, several books, television disrupted. I've read that. That's a great one. I think that was his earliest one, overcoming the digital divide. How to use social media and digital tools to reinvent yourself in your career, digital wisdom. He's got a few of them, data-driven thinking. I'll put links to this but he's a giver, and this is the this is the best, right? He is on the board of ADL, which is a leading anti-hate organization, which God knows we need in this day and age. And he's a co-founder of the Gun Safety Alliance, as well as several other things. He's chairman of the Lon T. Palmer Music Education Fund. And it not so I, I will do a little bit of the story and then I'll bring him in because I've spoken enough. Um, he's also just, because of his work, because of his connections, He's the he's kind of my the person I think about when I'm like, I don't know, but Shelly'll know. My dad had a um had a heart attack um early in life, ended up having a quadruple bypass and what in his 40s. And then he recently, you know, 15, 17, 20 years later, was having trouble again. And now it's complicated. You can't go back into the chest the same way, you need to do something that's super specialized. And I just didn't know where to turn. Um, I knew New York probably had the best, but I didn't know where to go. And I turned to my friend Shelly and he introduced me to this great cardiologist who in turn hooked us up with this great surgeon who did these very unconventional um, surgical practices that really brought my dad's quality of life back to normal. And uh, you know, I'm forever grateful to him just as a, as a person. So I hope that says it all, Shelly. Uh, I, I hope I have done you justice. I don't think any words I could ever utter would do that, but I'm so thrilled to have you on the show.
1: Uh, I Wow, Julie, that was above and beyond. <laughs> very humbling, very okay. humbling.
0: Well, uh, you deserve it all. Um, truly, it's it's is as great as all of those accolades are in your professional life. It's the personal that I think you don't get enough credit for. And um, I just want to make people, those who are listening to this, to, to know that from me. Thank you. Okay. So let's start. Let's go back because you've got this really interesting background. I want to start, as I always do, with where were you born, Shelly? Where were you from? <laughs> what did mom and dad do?
1: <laughs> oh, wow. So I was I was born in Brooklyn um, more than half a century ago. I'll leave it there. And uh, But at a very young age, my parents moved out to Long Island. So I was a couple of years old when they moved out to the suburbs. Um. Mom and Dad were music educators, and my father uh, was a a band leader in the Air Force. He led the Five Hundred Fourth Air Wing Band, and that's the west of the Mississippi band that does all of the dignitary functions. And it was a big band with a, a full detachment of of smaller combos. And he actually took a demotion in order to take because it's a non-com job being the leader of that that particular band, and. He was, a, he was a first lieutenant, and he had to become a, a lower rank in order to, to be the band leader of that band, but that was his passion. He was a, met my mom at uh, Juilliard when he was in Juilliard. And so um, they were music educators. When they got out of the Air Force, they opened up a music studio. They were both teaching in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn in the public school system, the New York City public school system, and uh, on a teacher's salary, and two teachers' salaries. My mom and dad could not afford babysitting. So after school, they opened up a music studio with a couple of their friends who were also music teachers to teach after school lessons. One of my earliest memories is being in a playpen in the middle of the lesson area. They had all these little practice rooms where people would take their lessons and hearing all of these instruments, uh, clarinets and pianos and guitars and flutes all through the doors. And that's my, one of my very, very earliest memories. And they, you know, they, they couldn't afford babysitting. This is why they opened up their music studio with their friends so that they'd have a way to pay the babysitter during the day while they taught school. And one thing led to another. My mom and dad, their business expanded and we moved to the suburbs. And I was incredibly young when we did that. And that I grew up in Huntington, Long Island, uh, kind of a blue collar neighborhood. Just went to public school and was uh, very lucky to have been blessed with an incredible music teacher in grade school and an even more incredible music teacher in junior high school and a, a, a prodigy of nature music teacher <laughs> in high school. Yeah. Right. Unbelievable teachers in the public school system in Huntington, Long Island during that time. And that's, you know, and I, my, my life was predetermined at that point. But it well, was, it was uh,
0: like it was predetermined when you were sitting in that playpen. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i might go back a little sooner. So, you know, obviously mom and dad had the, had the store. And I know you've shared with me that, you know, given that obviously you had this huge propensity for music, I'm sure your parents were super proud of that, but they had this business too. And so wanted you to, to be able to take that over. Right.
1: Well, you know, it was interesting. Uh, somehow when you're little and you're in a family business and all of the, I mean, we had, my father parked this big red truck in our driveway that they used to deliver pianos and it had the name of the store Freeport Music on the side of the thing and we lived on the top of this hill on Wolf Hill Road in Huntington in the 60s and so there wasn't anybody who didn't a know where I lived and b know what my father did <laughs> it was like so I was groomed from a very young age and and the phrase I think went something like when you grow up you're going to be the president of Freeport Music as if that was something. like I don't I don't even think I knew what that was but it was a thing that I was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> and they really, really wanted that to be true. and at at a certain point in my life, it just became obvious that that was not my destiny to me anyway. It was very kind of tough. I worked at I worked in this store from the time I was I mean really little uh, making change. I'm one of those uh, you know, kids who can do a lot of things with musical instruments. And one of the things that, you know, careful what you're, what they find out you can do. So I can tune a guitar, you know, pretty much very quickly without going through a lot of muss or fuss, the store in Huntington, where I was growing up as an eight year old had about 200 guitars in it. And my Saturday was dusting them and tuning them. Wow. (laughs) It's like, as an eight year old, and (laughs) then I'd sit behind the cash register and make change.
0: Yeah, so it was an extension of you. Well, like that makes sense to me too. By the way, that whole business acumen piece that came in there because you're you you run a very successful consulting practice amongst other things. So obviously the, the, the combination of the two is a uh, is a wicked powerful um, set of skills to have. I learned a lot
1: of things sitting there. I got to tell you, I learned an awful lot of lessons sitting behind the, that counter watching my dad do business. It was it was impressive. It was a family business. I I think I think everybody when they're young should have the opportunity to work in a retail store and serve customers and learn what it is to satisfy the needs of customers and to meet their expectations in order to feed yourself. (laughs) I think everyone should do that for a little while. It's humbling and it's very, very instructive.
0: Oh, it's, and I think it's more so today. I don't, this is about you, not, not me or the world of business, but you know, at Party City now and running customer experience and marketing it's the, we map customer journeys where all of our executive team is going out to follow customers and we go into stores, you know, every week, certainly every month. And it's, it's so important to be there and actually not just stand and observe always, although there is some goodness in that, but actually to do like you're saying. It's, oh, you,
1: why stand there and watch, yeah. put on an apron and go do something or stand behind the cash register or go to the customer service window, take oh. returns I, you know, I, it, selling something we, I had a really unusual situation and that there's a, um, my father had a, a competitor who was his arch enemy in business. Uh, the company was called Sam Ash music. They're still around today, I think. And, uh, they were right next door to us. Literally you could walk 20 steps and be in the Sam Ash store. And it was a much bigger store and it was much more modern. Uh, they were better funded, I believe. And people would walk back and forth to price check, or to we had slightly different franchises. So you you might want a Fender guitar, you'd get it from them. You might want a Gibson guitar, you would get it from us. But some of the acoustic guitars we both carried the same or very similar brands or very similar models. And having to sell at that level of competition, what was hysterical is that um, the grandson, Sam Ash, uh, the third, well, he wasn't really a third; his grandfather passed away. Um, and Richie Ash, his brother, and I were great friends. <laughs> so our fathers like competed like cats and dogs. And Richie and I were, and Sam were like, yeah, we're just yeah, we're just kids. It's just,
0: that's, that's which makes sense, right? It's the old um, it's the old adage, right, with the, the dueling friends, and then of course the 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 children of them get <laughs> get you know get married. There's all the love underneath, right?
1: Yeah, you know, look, everybody was trying to do the same thing, right? Basically be involved in the music business because there isn't enough music in the world to tell you the truth Julie there really isn't and there aren't enough people who are who are able to enjoy it from a performance basis because they've cut so much of it out of the school system now you know when we were kids everybody took music classes and whether you sang or you're in chorus or you're in band or something else recorder class at least they were trying to communicate this idea of performance skill and what it is to accomplish that and so many great benefits come out of that and when you i do some volunteer teaching in the afternoon here in the city and i got to tell you the they've cut so many important arts programs and i understand that the budgets are tight but this is nourishment for the soul and it also i think completes you as a as a citizen and mm-hmm. as a as a potential worker, I mean, it just and it's also enriches you as a person. I am very sad that those those budgets are cut and 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 will continue to be cut, unfortunately. So, yeah, it's um, but notwithstanding, we were in the music business then and I, I went into the music business in a different way, you know, pretty much right out of college.
0: Well, you went. So let's do that. So you went to college, but you you were still kind of following dad's, you know, I guess. His oh, music. the
1: mandate. Yes. Um, he had been to, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. He had been to Juilliard, which is where he met my mother. And, and um, well, he didn't think I needed a music education. He thought that I was naturally gifted enough that I was a member of the Lucky DNA Club. And I, no one would disabuse him of that. I was, I mean, I will never call myself what other people called me, but I, as a musician, but I had, I was perf- performance well, skills and capabilities Above you were a prodigy. My,
0: there
1: you go. Well, I'm not going to say it. I, I'm not going <laughs> to say it. But, but anyway, I have a lot of musical skill that just came with my DNA. I'll just leave it that way. And I had to practice relentlessly like everybody else has to practice relentlessly. I'm not going to say I didn't. I played six, seven hours a day because I loved it. But, but I had some raw material that I could make into something. And my father had no interest in me going to music school. He thought it was all just nonsense. He wanted me to go to business school and he wouldn't hear of it any other way. And I went to business school for the first couple of years of college. um, CW Post School of Professional Accountancy in Greenvale, New York. Thank you. (laughs) And I was an accounting major with a marketing minor.
0: (laughs) How'd you you like it?
1: Uh, The accounting was beyond boring. I like the math because I'm kind of a math guy, but I like the math. There wasn't a lot of math. There was a lot of theory. And and, um, uh, the marketing stuff, I felt like I was already working in the marketing department at my dad's company and the educational approach to marketing and the hardcore they, they had a mail order catalog my father had one of the very first ever uh, catalogs of musical instruments a mail order business and his insight was take 30 percent off the list price back in the day everything was sold very close to list price or maybe a 10 percent discount and he said 30 percent off musical instruments he made a 16 page catalog and it wasn't much the first one was newsprint it was a bunch of Sixteen squares on a page, basically, mm-hmm. filled with instruments that he basically cut out of other catalogs and pasted in with rubber cement, and then sent to the printer. It wasn't pretty, but what it was was the right price. And I learned an awful lot about the difference between glossy catalogs and little sheets with the right price on it, and uh, how you tag customers and cluster and classify them, and. What a lifetime value of a customer was, and I, I, I was already deep in that uh, the way you could be without computers in the '70s, and I was in school with marketing as late '70s. I was in school with marketing guys who I didn't think really were clued in to the, the hardcore reality of what it is to get people to separate uh, from their money for value and what it meant to compete. It was very theoretical. I, you know, it was college, and I, I don't know that they had the best people at CW Post to tell you the truth. So I wasn't, wasn't a big fan.
0: Well, it's, it's, it's just the, the irony in here is just so it's just dripping because of your, like your MarTech. I'm sure you were probably just way ahead of them even then without actually knowing it. So
1: it's kind, maybe, I don't know.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Plus you had the practical experience that I'm sure most didn't have about, you know, working in the store, which you're, you're going to pick up on it just because you're retail. So, but you, so to your point, you did it. You didn't love it. Nope. And you said that there was a kind of a, well, this, you know, I would term it a Hoshimo, a holy shit moment, where you had to come to grips with the fact that this just wasn't your destiny and you were going have to have to have the hard conversation with your dad.
1: Oh, Julie, let me tell you, uh, my father's passed away 12 years. There's isn't a day that goes by that I don't miss him. He was my very best friend in the world. And he was my number one fan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he really was um amazed always at the level that I would take my music and the technology around the music and the things I would do with it. I'm making a lot of money as a teenager. I made more money as a teenager writing music and producing music than my father made owning a music Mm. facility, a music store and a mail order company. And to tell you the truth, um, it was a very it was a really tough conversation because I he didn't really understand what I wanted to do because in his mind a working musician played club dates and weddings and bar mitzvahs right and I had opportunities to write commercials and to work in in to do some work for some film companies and and some advertising agencies that had all come through. Uh, my high school sweetheart's father's lawyer and I had to, I had to sit down with my father and tell him that I was not going to be president of Freeport music. I want to tell you, I've never had a harder conversation before or since. Mm. And he was oddly supportive of it, but he wasn't. And what I mean by that is he was very supportive of my decision and did not push back at all. But in hindsight, I know that it devastated him because it was something he really wanted, and that's what hurt. It wasn't that I wasn't going to do it, and it wasn't that he didn't ultimately. And by the way, the flip side of that is when he semi-retired, he came to work for me, <laughs> and he was our he was our CFO and uh, C, was COO and then CFO for like ten years uh, before he got ill and and had to really retire. But but in practice, um, it was the it was hurting him that bothered me it wasn't his reaction was you know go in good health get it done i'm you know i'm behind you but you could see like he was crestfallen cuz my brother was into another thing my brother went to accounting school and became a cpa and so i was the you know help me obi-wan kenobi you're my only hope i was <laughs> i was going to be the I was, it was me or it was nobody right so so he had felt like you could see he worked his whole life and he didn't he didn't want to sell the business um, in fact, we didn't sell the business until, uh, two weeks before his death. We didn't oh, sell
0: the business. Oh my, yeah. oh, that's amazing. So I know, I know your dad, you said understood, but, but there was a, there was a moment there wasn't there where he, he understood what he was and he supported you emotionally perhaps, but not he wasn't going to support you financially for paying. Yeah.
1: Well, there was that, you know, it was like, <laughs> I'm not paying for school. If you're going to go to music school, Is that. So I ended up rebelling, you know,
0: you can, you can so be 19 a, or 20 or whatever. Right. Of course. Yeah.
1: You could be a jerk when you're young and, yeah. and, and I mean, I'm still a jerk, but you could be a real jerk <laughs> when you're young. So I wanted, I desperately wanted an education that was formal. I wasn't self-taught, so I don't want anyone to think that. My mother and father were bona fide, no kidding, music teachers. And I had a bunch of other music teachers on top of that. Like they kept me pretty well educated. So it wasn't like I didn't have a really complete and rigorous um, both classical Broadway and pop training. Like I, I had all of that, but I wanted to go to school for it. Like I knew there were there were other levels. Michael Brecker is a few years older than me. He's passed away. I mean, David Sandmore and these guys were playing saxophone in ways that I only dreamed about playing saxophone and they had musical conception that was really interesting and chromatic harmony was interesting and Berkeley in Boston this music school was happening in North Texas State um, University had the one o'clock lab band and it was like the greatest band ever. Uh, It was like incredible jazz you could go and play and and learn about, and I just wanted to go be part of. I wanted to hang out with those musicians, and I want to be part of that. I was young. That was the cutting edge of, of harmonic exploration. That was the cutting edge of technique. That was the cutting edge of everything musically. And I wanted to go there, and he was having none of it. <laughs> so I rebelled.
0: And we're, so, and you rebelled by like. Just I went
1: to marine something. biology school for a summer. I oh, decided really? I'm going to go scuba dive. I'm done. I'm not playing music. I'm not doing anything. I'm. I'll play some weekends, and I'm I'm going to go become dolphin. a marine biologist. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's funny.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, and by the way, I I love dolphins, and I'm a big fan of scuba diving. And I'd been certified. In fact, I'm a I'm a certified dive master. I'd been scuba diving since you know the age of whatever they'd let you—12 years old, 14 years old, whatever it was back then. But but <laughs> it was really a healthy, hearty up yours from me. At a, <laughs> yeah. In hindsight, it was really stupid to tell you the truth.
0: Oh, but you got it out of your system, right? I did.
1: Yeah.
0: You went, you went went to NYU, didn't you? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right after that. um, Basically, I thought I would go work on the transatlantic cable as a scuba diver, as Uh a hard hat diver. And I walked in and the first thing the guy says to me is, um, what are you gonna do on disability? I'm like, Hey man, I just got here. What do you mean disability? He goes, Well, 80% of the people in this program leave within six months with uh on disability. I said, Well, what are the maladies that happen? Like, you don't get the bends, you decompress. He goes, yeah, you know, it's not that. You punctured eardrum is number one. And I'm like, sorry, I'm done. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> it's like okay. So um uh, a friend of mine had told me that the uh, TV school in NYU was the best in the country. If I didn't want to go to the West coast, uh, uh, maybe to, to UCLA or USC or one of the, you know, uh, California schools. So um, or Syracuse. So if I wanted to be in the city, you know, NYU was like an amazing film school. And this guy, Haig Minugian, this incredible uh, f- instructor filmmaker was the head of that program. And you had to audition. And I'm like, I, you know, you're fearless when you're a kid, right? I had, I'd done, I'd taken one semester of television in high school at that point, one semester and I liked it. So I thought TV school, that's for me. (laughs) And off I went.
0: Again, it's the, it's the, it's the luxury we have when we're young, right? That's like my kids in college. I'm like, do whatever you want. This is your chance. So you, you graduated there and you met Don Elliott, right? Famous jazz musician. Yeah, That changed your life, No
1: it was a total transformation of of my world i i was i was really into electronic music i i got my first synthesizer a moog serial uh, system 2 serial number 002 in 1972 the okay. first thing i did to it was i i built a way to computer uh build a way to uh, store the data from the analog uh, controls digitally and and be able to replicate those by replacing some of the uh, components with digital components in my analog synthesizer. I was so into electronics and electronic music and recording and multi-track, homemade track systems were really just coming to the fore. And I was, people were just starting to build project studios and home studios. And I was committed, committed, committed to this. Um, I started... In '78, I was still in school. I went to the bank to take a $5,000 loan to buy gear, and they wanted me to have $5,000 mm-hmm. uh, to put into the $10,000 worth of equipment I wanted to buy. I thought I would go figure out how to earn that. My grandmother wrote me that check uh, for $5,000 with a with a uh, big kiss. And she said, look, go, go get it done. And, and I had built this incredible home studio. I mean, really cutting edge for its day. And when I was still in school, I was looking for some additional equipment and there was an ad in the paper for this gear. And I, it was 80 West 40th street was where the studio was. And that was a vaguely familiar address to me because I've been playing around town. I get there and it's Don Elliott's studio. And there's this ARP odyssey sitting next to a, a Roland SH-1000 and I want the Odyssey and it's for He's got it in the paper for 400 bucks and it was like a $1,200 synthesizer and it looked like it was brand new. It looked like it would never been touched. So I said, look, you know, I brought the cash with me and I said, you don't mind if I try it out. So I sat down and I just ran it through its paces to make sure that it was okay. Cause you know, why is it 400 bucks? It's a $1,200 box. So I go to give him the money and he said, he said, why do you want this one? It doesn't do this, it doesn't do that. I'm like, it does all of that. And I showed him why it did. And I said, this box to the left, this little SH-1000 is a toy. Like this is the real deal. And even this is a toy compared to, it's just, you know, it's pre-wired. It's even, this is a toy compared to what I would normally use. I just like this because it's really fast. Mm -hmm. So it's, and I handed him the 400 bucks because it's not for sale. Oh, And I'm like, what do you mean it's not for sale? He's like, you're coming to work for me. (gasps) And I said, "Uh, how does that work? He goes, well, A, I'm giving this to you and B, um you're making 100 bucks a week as a writer rep you're gonna make 100 phone calls a day and anything you bring in you can write a demo for and you're starting now
0: wow wow and
1: he had me playing a recording session with that particular piece of equipment a day later from mercedes-benz i'll never forget my first super pro you know where every musician in the room was someone i'd heard of and you know like from the radio (laughs) it's like it's amazing so when i was i was uh i was Maybe it's the beginning of my senior year, somewhere in that area. So by the end of my senior year, I was working for him. And I had a choice, go off to AFI, Marty Brest and Marty Scorsese were my sponsors in California or go work for Don. And I was making real money working for Don. And I thought, do I want to stay in school and learn to make movies? Or do I want to go play music every day for this guy who seems to have an unending amount of work that I, and I learned more when this guy just picked up his horn to play or, or, or sat down to, to write an arrangement. I mean, it was, that was the master's degree that I wanted in music right there that, I mean, so I just, I couldn't resist it. It was the greatest job ever.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's funny because if somebody like said would be like, well, do you want to go uh, for something that Martin Scorsese is sponsoring, or do you want to go? <laughs> I mean, people would be like, oh, but this was without that Don Elliott experience. And I, I want you to tell the story of sort of the the turning point that you had with with Don, you know, a little bit later, and how that kind of pivoted you to where you are. But you know, that's it's it's fascinating that you were able to have the foresight of like. And I don't know how how popular was Scorsese. Oh, giant! Back he was giant, fam. He's like the, one of the most right? famous students.
1: Him, Woody yeah. Allen, Marty <laughs> Brest, Chris Columbus—that's Haig's progeny. I mean, those I mean, those guys are. Yeah. You have talent. And they did. I mean, Haig w- had a way to just make you better at everything you did. Uh, the lessons from Haig Mnugin were uh, amazing. And, um, Mark Chernikov, another TV teacher there was incredible. David Sirota incredible staff at NYU, yeah. but you know, it's funny, Julie, when I, when I, and I always think about that decision, like when people say, do you have any regrets? Or do you ever think yeah. back on your life and what you would have changed? That was a really pivotal decision. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it at the time. Um, that I met Don, but when I had to make the decision, go out to the West Coast in 1979 or go to work full-time for Don in New York City and Westport, was a very, it was very clearly going to shape the rest of my life, very clearly. And I made the decision in a funny way. Um, no one could counsel me on it because no one really knew what I knew about myself, right? I didn't know much about myself at the time. And I thought... I don't know if I make good television or good movies. I don't, I mean, I'm learning, I'm, I'm learning to make, to tell good stories. I'm, I'm learning to tell them with pictures. Uh, clearly I'm top of my class, but that doesn't mean anything. These are talented kids, but that's not the real world. I don't know if I have an innate gift to be a great director, but I know if I'm sitting home by myself I'll, or I'm just walking around, I'll come up with an original piece of music and I can store that code or that little song fragment or that tone poem, and I can then turn it into real cash. Um, I have no problem originally thinking up billions of melodies, different orchestrations, different ways to create interesting sounds. I'm obviously a natural musician. I don't know if I'm a natural filmmaker. Maybe I should give myself the best chance of success by sticking around and working with this guy who basically I thought was a genius in every way. I mean, Don was just a genius. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing to watch him work. I literally, you the, the guy oozed musical thought. And one of his best friends was Quincy Jones. And uh, not to drop crazy names.
0: Oh, but, but it's so fun. I but, it.
1: So I, uh, you'd be up at Don's house in Westport and there'd be a knock at the door and Quincy would be there with his trumpet. And the two of these guys would sit down and be playing piano. And these two guys are playing trumpet. And that's what we do for a night. Like, how do you get that how do you get that anyway? Like I don't know if you get that in school, but that's what I got working with Don and it was a it was kind of a it was kind of a a, a crazy choice and I just made it and I've never regretted it, but I've often thought how different my life would be right. if I went to Los Angeles, took 2 years of AFI, the AFI at the time was a year of television production and a year of film production. You needed to be sponsored, you needed to audition. I'd covered all that, that was easy. Um, the hard part was going to be, is that how you want to spend your life? Is that what you want to do? And I had relatives living in Los Angeles. I, wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't have been a hardship to move out there. I could have gone, you know, and done it. I just don't, it would have been a very different world for me. Um, I'm not unhappy in any way. And I've got absolutely not one thing in the universe to regret. But that was a, that when you talk about your um, holy shit moments, mm-hmm, that one, you, very often you don't know when you're having one. This one, I was quite well aware that this was a hmm, whatever decision you make now is going to have a pretty substantial impact yep. on your yep. worldview.
0: Well, I think all of us are glad that you chose that. I don't know where you'd be, but I, I mean, I, I know, I know our lives are richer for having your choice. So tell your oh, tell you. a story about being with Don and what you learned and sort of how Kind of what what that because I you know I don't want to boil ruin the surprise but that experience and how it ended and kind of what
1: well what you know the happen. the experience itself was fantastic in that yeah. in that I learned things about myself and I learned things about my t- he knew more about what I was capable of than I did and I've always thought that that was an amazing managerial skill and it it had a big impact on me when I've managed teams and I've managed my own staff being able to to really deeply understand and believe in in your team and and have them stretch really far and get a little out of their comfort zone and then rejoice in them either succeeding or, or learning from the mistake and structuring a, uh, an environment where that is encouraged. It seems to grow people better and it seems to get better outcomes. At the end of my Don Elliott story, it doesn't end as nicely as I wanted it to Don went on vacation with his family and I was left alone with his office manager to run the company for a week or so. And I brought in a job and I did the work and there was a lot to it. You had to go sell it and then you had to write the demo. Then you had to do the demo. Then you had to like present it to the client and the client had to say yes or no and get the, so all this was very compressed because this one particular commercial had to be done very quickly. Don gets back on the very day of the session, about two weeks after this process, and he comes in and he sings in the background which you know got him paid because <laughs> background singing back in the day was a pretty lucrative thing to do on a jingle solo singing was really lucrative but background singing pay your rent for quite a while and on any even on one spot that was going to run nationally and i got a check for a thousand forty two dollars and change i think 18 cents on a much 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 bigger budget and I asked where the rest of the money was if was this my session fee was this cuz I had brought the job in arranged it produced it played on it sang on it you know I did everything he basically walked in sight-rated the a part of the background thing and then you know anyway um he said to me at that time uh oh, that's your that's your fee that's that's your, that's your pay and um, and I protested and you know, Julie, you've been very kind to me on this call, but you and I both know that uh, uh, I have, I'm not known to be bashful or shy, nope. I'll put it that way. And I do speak my mind, you probably cannot imagine the ego and arrogance of a 20 some odd year old Shelly Palmer. <laughs> it's its hard to describe what a total asshole I was as a kid. It really is. And uh, it was all based in the fact that I suffered no fools. I couldn't, I, I didn't understand why people couldn't do certain things. I was, I always projected my own skills on others, assuming like, man, you can't do this. What are you telling me? It's going to take you an hour. Is this is a five minute thing. What are you doing? Like I was that kind of person. I'm not proud of it. It's just who I was. I ripped up the check. I handed it to Don. I said, you're going to need this more than I will. And I walked out.
0: Yep. And what happened then?
1: Uh, Well, the next, the next day, Shelly Palmer Productions went live. Um, The the biggest mistake of my life. (laughs) Oh my God. Was that a lesson that I would, I I mean, so I went, I, I took my demo reel, the stuff I'd written, and I had a fairly decent body of work at that point. And I started going out to people who I knew in the business that I had played reels for and, uh, a guy named Bill Artepe at WB Donor in Baltimore, that agency, pretty much set me straight. I go down to Baltimore from New York, take the train, and I go to his office and I play him the tape and I show him what I'm doing. And I said, look, you know, I'm not working with Don anymore. I've struck out on my own. I was kind of proud. This is maybe a week or so after the separation. And Bill says to me, Man, I gotta tell you, you're you're not getting hired here. I said, I I understand you have allegiance to Don. He goes, I don't have allegiance to Don or anybody else. You're not getting hired here. Why? He says, if this song that you're going to write for me, this original song, there's so many variables in my life. I'm about to spend $30 million airing this commercial. If anything goes wrong, I need to say I had her Brits shoot the video. I had Don Elliott do the audio. It's like everything was set up to succeed. You know, Steven Spielberg himself did the production design. I'm not getting fired. But if one thing's out of whack, like some kid no one's ever heard of and has no real credits, like I used you to do this, I'm going to get my ass fired. And you know what? I don't like you that much. <laughs> and, and he was so honest with me that it was really one of the best, worst meetings of my life. hmm It was that classic, well, you need experience to get experience, you have to get experience. It was that terrible, you know, cycle where no one's hiring you, but you need to be hired to get hired. Yep. So I did what any normal human being would do when faced with a level of adversity that you just can't imagine. At the time, a demo was a five hundred dollar bill to the ad agency. You would charge them five hundred bucks for a demo. It was standardized. Everybody did, nobody worked for free, everybody worked for $500 and no one was hiring me. So what I did was I made my demo fee $2,500. Now this was ridiculous. This was insane. It was five times the the industry best practice and it was the kind of money you'd pay if you were gonna have a band come in commissioned to do something that was like the next level up before you did the final. Mm -hmm. So this was crazy. And I would make a point of saying to everyone, you know, we charge $500 for $2,500 for our demos. And everyone would stop and go, what? Wait a minute. I thought you were kidding. We only pay $500. That's what the industry visit. Yeah. I'm really the best in the world at what I do. And I'm not going to work for $500. Bucks, so if you want it, you know, it's $2,500. This became such a scandalous thing to say. Mm-hmm. About three months go by and I'm thinking to myself, maybe the strategy is not so good. and an agency calls up, IBM, and their client is IBM Tri-State Employees Federal Credit Union. And their tagline is, where you belong. And I was like, wow, okay. And they said, well, we've got your $2,500. I thought they were kidding. <laughs> I, li- Julie, I swear to God, I thought they were kidding. And, and then at the end of the phone call that when they're commissioned the job, and the woman says to me, and Shelly, this $2,500, it's very irregular. This better be, and, sh- and this is in quotes, Julie, this better be fucking great, unquote.
0: <laughs> and I'm sure you're like, one <laughs> and I'm done. Yeah.
1: I mean, when you think about it, it was just one of the funnier moments of my life. And after that, after like that went on the air and a couple of things all hit, like then we were in business. But wow, that first six, eight months when you could not get arrested with my resume, which was yes. a decent resume, but... You know, it was very obvious. I'm a little kid working out of his, you know, spare bedroom.
0: Yep.
1: And and th- it wasn't a time in the world where little kids working out of the spare bedrooms were well respected. Today, you could have a startup. You know, the classic three kids in a garage be a startup, and everyone's going. You could be a unicorn. Back then, you were a little kid working out of your spare bedroom.
0: Right. No glamour around it. Yeah, it wasn't. Was-
1: no, it wasn't anywhere near as glamorous as it is today. But yeah, I and I look. I did reconnect with Don just before he passed away. And, and we had a, a kind of a beautiful moment and we you know we, we he he and I spoke very very frankly about our feelings for one another and it it was really quite lovely uh, and I miss him a lot he you know we didn't talk for a while after that because you know I was an idiot and I you know he didn't yeah. I don't know but we did reconnect just before he passed away for, and it was it was I was very happy to have that closure uh, I can't say enough good things about him I really can't even and even even the way we split, was a, a good education for me. And my reaction to leaving there taught me more about what I was gonna have to do every day the rest of my life, which is, you know, get up every morning and no matter how many no's you hear, one of them is gonna be a yes. Like you're, you just, 10 no's equal a yes, 20 no's equal a yes, 50 no's equal a yes. Somewhere in there, you know, just get out of bed and 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 just go hit it and you have no choice. And I think that was, that was pretty formative for me back then. I mean, that's 79, 80, but boy, I tell you what, it feels like it was yesterday.
0: I bet it does. Well, you'd said too, you'd told the, I mean, in that touching story with Don and as he was, you know, he was kind of on those last few days as he was being, succumbing to, to pancreatic cancer, I think you had said, and when he had said that he'd kind of, when he'd taken you aside and, and he'd said, look, take it or leave it. I got a whole bunch of like yeah I got twenty six people lined up behind you where you came yeah. from, no big deal, and you ripped up the check, right? Is that it was uh, he 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 was bluffing, right?
1: Yeah, he was. and yeah. he said he said as much, and i I'm embarrassed to say it, but like I said, it was a very personal, beautiful moment, but he he basically said to me, look, shelly, I, I I was I was bluffing. there. you know, you're a unique talent, and I was an idiot to let you out of here, and I should have called you up and told you that a long time ago. And you know it was very tearful. I it it was, and I don't think of myself as particularly more talented or less talented than anybody else. Because no matter how talented you are, Julie, it's only a part of the puzzle, Mm -hmm. right? Luck is really important, and working your ass off to make some luck is even more important. You can be the greatest, most talented human being in the world. You sit in your house playing music. It's not going to help you, you or anybody else. So. Yeah, the the learning to hustle and and or being forced uh in that and also when you when you are a little bit lucky in the in the lucky dna club you don't have the same kind of failures that others have you have different failures they're no less profound and in fact in many ways they're they're equally or more profound but you, you, you have different failures. I don't ever doubt my ability to do something that's inside my skill set. But I don't, I, if you, but I will often doubt the process around presenting those skills,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? It's like, there's so many ways you can screw up. Like if you just rely on your talent, there are some people who are even more talented and they're able to do that. And you can name them. They're superstars, narcissistic, crazy people who are just famous for doing one thing brilliantly and everybody loves that thing. But these people are one in a million or one in 10 million. I mean, you can name them. They're stars. You know, they read People Magazine. They're in that magazine. Uh, read Us Weekly. I mean, it's like they're there. Um, the rest of us poor stiffs who are not, you know, um, in that league, we, you know, so you get, you get, some good musical skills and some ability to do some mathematics and and you get uh, a decent business acumen. Okay. That's a pretty good hand. That's what I've been dealt. What are you going to do with it? Well, what are you going to do with it?
0: But you've, so you, and I, you know, I know, look, I, what I love about you is that you, you, you're so raw and honest, you know, you have a talent. I mean, I think some people don't, you know, some people, yes, have no problem proclaiming their talent, but you don't have any problem saying like, yes, I'm really good at these things. But if you listen to your story, you were, you were, people tried to pull you off and, and dissuade you every step of the way. Not in a, and not necessarily in a malicious way, you know, your dad first, you know, out of love and concern and really believing it was the best thing for you, but you had to push yourself there the entire way through you know, school, all your stories there, even with Don and, you know, choosing to go on your own and the thousands of no's you got before you got a yes. And uh, yours is a story of dedication and perseverance. And the holy shit moments were there, not, they didn't, this is exactly why I do this. You're the perfect example of not dissuading you, but making you just, just reinvest and read, like reinforce that you're not going to let those things Well, you know,
1: Julie, I got to tell you, I I never thought about it that way until COVID, because this is the fourth reinvention of my career. And none of them have been by choice.
0: Hmm.
1: Right. They just haven't been. And at a certain point, you say to yourself, "Um, the skill isn't any of the ones you think you have. The skill is an open enough mind to adapt Mm -hmm. You have to be able to adapt to the stimulus. You have to be able to see the field for as it is and and just try to take some bets and be willing to be wrong and not beat yourself up about it because you're going to be wrong just it's part of this right um being wrong more than you're right if you're honest with yourself everybody likes to put their best foot forward and say look at me i'm a super success it's like really how many times did you screw that up before you got it right and if they say it was you know they got it right on the first time then you know it could happen that's fantastic god bless congrats but i rarely meet people who are super successful or even moderately successful who haven't just adapted and adapted and persevered and just kept just kept doing it every day just keep doing it right and and so yeah this is like i said this i don't think i appreciated resiliency and adaptability quite as much prior to this this has been tough uh fantastic but tough but but tough and and fascinating because if i'm honest with myself I'm back in the business I started in. Not the music part, the creative services part. The literally what I what I did when I opened up my production company. I'm I, we're back doing that combined with strategy and and we've we've evolved with the tools as the tools have evolved over time and I'm really quite thankful for that because it's that arsenal of weapons that we have right now that are making this an embarrassingly good time for us, even though it's tragic for so many of our friends and tragic for the world and America and everything else. We are, we are doing really well right now.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think, but that's not a, that's, I mean, that's not by accident either. And, you know, and look, we could, I could have four episodes with you on this because we, we haven't even gotten to all the, you know, how you built, how you built, you know, your, your, your current company. And now it's a family company. You've got your, you know, your kids are also prodigies, at least for the, you know, Jared and that oh, I'm, I'm very know.
1: lucky. They are very, very blessed.
0: Right. Very, I mean, you've got it's in it's but I don't know that it's all lucky. I think I mean, look, they're lucky to have been born to you, but I'm sure <laughs> they worked equally as hard um, because they're they're, kids. They're, they're they're smart. I mean, I you know, I'm super impressed by them. Thanks. But, you know, when you talk about all these different reinventions, I'm sure there's a, a ton of, of holy shit moments. But why do you think? Just to kind of as we end, um, what do you think when you're saying you guys are really successful? I again, I don't think it's it's by luck. I think it's purpose because you have what people need, and I think that that's what's interesting about you is you are always on the forefront. I mean, even digitally, like the music that you talked about, you were you were always a little bit ahead or a lot ahead, I guess, in many cases. But what do you think that that's what's happening now? What do you what do you attribute the success you're having to? Um.
1: A little bit of blood, sweat, and tears in that uh, understanding uh, e- empathy, I think, is the key to what's happening now, being empathetic to the things people are feeling and they're needing. And, you know, you said it's a family business. My daughter, Alexis, runs the company, yeah. and uh, she has a very high EQ way higher than mine and i think having her as a young mom of two and seeing her balance the world and seeing how she interacts and how she teaches her daughters and what just being part of that over the last my, my oldest granddaughter's 12 and you know in the last 12 years i've watched this this very very carefully and been a big part of it and it is a family business and we're very proud of that um you know that that level of empathy, understanding where where people are in pain and how you can help, that's part of it. The other part is my definition of success. Julie has changed. Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm. I would never self-identify as a business person. I haven't for years. Someone says, "What do you do for a living?" I I almost always say, "I'm a father and a grandfather." Uh, those are my first, most important jobs. Uh, I'm a completely inadequate husband, but I that would be my third job. (laughs) And uh and then the rest of this is is what I do in order to um help feed my family Mm -hmm. by solving problems that other people have. And in order to solve those problems, to be successful at solving problems, you need to be quite empathetic to what those problems are. And then come in with real solutions not that that are trustable Mm
0: -hmm.
1: now because trust is such an issue so i think empathy and reputation understanding what the issues are that we're trying to solve for and then offering real solutions as opposed to lip service solutions and the the reason that we're able to do that now and the reason i'm very pleased with where we are and, and and not at all really not at all embarrassed by by what I would consider a fairly successful 2020 is that we use the tools and the equipment and the methods and the workflows and the processes that we teach and or sell in our practice. So there's no book learning here. There's just a lot of experience. And it's that, it's that, that makes this work. It's like nobody is talking to you hypothetically or pedantically or demagogically. There's no, hey, I read this in a book. This might work for you. This is we didn't read this in a book. We've done this. This is when it works. This is when it doesn't. This problem you have looks like this one. This is a pretty decent approach. Here's some tools. Here's some workflow. Here's some process. We think we can help you solve this issue. And and that has been um, really really good for us. And the other thing is we try to use all of the technology we've ever accumulated and apply it to the current issue that everyone's having in business. How do you meet? How do you have serendipity? How do you get together? How do you communicate? How do you not get Zoom fatigue? How do you build, how do you build a world where travel budgets may be reduced forever by 25, 30% or 40%. What does it mean to sit at your desk and go meeting after meeting and how, what kind of workflows have to happen? How can you be super productive? How could you be on brand? How could you not go out of your mind <laughs> while you're doing it, right? I mean, that that's the kind of stuff where there are technologies that can be applied and and knock on wood, you know, we we have a handle on a lot of it a Great team, unbelievable people working here, and this is what we've been working on. So it's kind of like us meeting history. And again, my definition of success has changed. So you know, it's not financial success only. It's you know how much good can you actually do and in, uh, in the universe, and and you know get the good karma going. That that's success. The rest of it, the rest of it takes care of itself.
0: I agree, I agree. I think, and I, I I feel the same about defining success. And I think that that just comes with age and wisdom, hopefully, um, from having maybe pursued the false, the false gods, as they say. Um, <laughs> yeah,
1: right? I don't disagree.
0: But, um, but I think it's, I think it's great. And I do think that something about this COVID era allows us to, to maybe appreciate that more, because we're we're having the distractions have, have somewhat gone away, and we've had to really live with ourselves. So I, you know, that's, I, I hope that there's some good that comes out of this. I mean, but.
1: look, Julie, I miss people, right? I mean, we all do. Yeah. I miss I miss the way we used to live. And it, this is not forever, but it's going to be for a while. And so you just, everybody, I think, is just trying to to find a way to have something that feels normal or whatever, define the new normal. I think we're all in the same boat. You know, whether whether you believe in, you know, you can't, ah, look, the politics of this are insane, so I'm not going to even try to, to, to explain any of that. But at the end of the day, no matter how you feel about this, the world has changed. Yeah and and not for the good i might add
0: yep not necessarily so right i agreed yeah all right my friend we, i have taken so much of your time but this has been such a great session i just i i know people are going to love it it's i know you and i still love it i i can't get enough so thank you for for sharing so much of your story with us i know people will will really be inspired by it
1: well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you, Julie, always. You're a very special human being, and you are brilliant in every way. And I am—I uh, was humbled to be asked, and I was happy to uh, be able to spend some time with you
0: today. Thank you so much.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.